This episode of Gospel Bound is brought to you by Crossway and the new ESV Bible app. The ESV Bible app is designed to help you engage with God's Word on a deeper level, offering elegant, intuitive features to personalize your study, including multiple audio recordings of the full ESV text, audio playlists, customizable background music, daily reading plans, and more. Download the ESV Bible app on your phone or tablet, or visit esv.org to get started. Welcome to Gospel Bound, a podcast from the Gospel Coalition for those searching for resolute hope in an anxious age. I'm your host, Colin Hansen, and each week I'm joined by insightful guests to talk about their written work and how the gospel applies to all of life. Together, we keep looking until we see God working. Wherever you're listening, welcome. I'm glad you're here for today's conversation. Do you feel tired of fighting the same racial battles over and over, tired of waiting for the next racial controversy, tired of more hostility and animosity, tired of the same old ideologies that don't work, tired of the same arguments and getting nothing done? George Yancey is tired, but not so tired to give up hope. That's why he wrote Beyond Racial Division, a unifying alternative to colorblindness and anti-racism, published by IVP. Yancey is a professor at the Institute for Studies of Religion at Baylor University, specializing in race, ethnicity, and religion. Yancey describes colorblindness as a path that goes nowhere, and anti-racism as a path full of dangerous animals. As an alternative, he proposes mutual accountability. He believes this approach will produce a group that wants to address and not ignore unfair racial outcomes. This group realizes anti-racism cannot produce sustainable change, These are my people, Yancey writes. The big question we struggle with today, Yancey argues, is this. How do we recover from our history of racial abuse in ways most of us consider to be fair? He joins me now on Gospel Bound to discuss why he's skeptical of activism and protest, why he doesn't call America racist, why diversity training doesn't work, and why he thinks we need unity before justice among other topics. I'll also ask him a couple questions about his other new book, One Faith No Longer, The Transformation of Christianity in Red and Blue America, published last year with New York University Press. Dr. Yancey, thank you for joining me on Gospel Bound. Thanks for having me. Let's just jump right in. What's the biggest difference that you observe in American life when it comes to race since you began writing on the subject? Probably the biggest difference is that the question on whether or not people of color are fully human has fortunately been answered completely. Uh, I think there was still when I was, I mean, I've been writing for a little while. So uh, I think when I first started writing, while probably most people thought, yeah, blacks and Hispanics are fully human. That wasn't that was not you couldn't take that for granted when you were talking to people. I think today you probably can. So I, I think that's a big change, a big shift. That is a big shift. <laughs> I thought it was interesting in the book that you observed that African-Americans have more agency now than in any other time in history. I thought that was some helpful perspective as well. What's the difference between calling American society racist uh, versus calling it racialized? Well, for me, racialized means that race matters. And I think no one re- really can argue that Uh I mean, we still have all the controversies of racism matter why all the controversies. 
So I don't think anyone can really argue that. And so it gets me in a place where I can have a conversation with someone, you know, because they're not defensive all automatically. Once you start saying this is a racist society, then for some people, they can't hear you because they're defensive. They're, they're, in, they're in a defensive posture that they don't, they, don't, they don't want to protect themselves. So for me, I have to think about what's useful for a conversation and a racialized society is a more useful way to conceptualize it. Now, uh, this was another, it's, it's graphically illustrated in your book, Beyond Racial Division, but could you just describe or explain the cycle of dysfunctional racial relationships? I thought that was a really helpful way of describing this pattern that feels like we're, we're constantly stuck in. Yeah, so what will happen is there'll be a racial incident of some sort, some sort of racial controversy, perhaps a shooting, perhaps some sort of controversy of the school board, something, something will happen. And it'll blow up and it'll be national news. And then you'll get the protests, usually from people who are more into the anti-racism camp. You'll get this protest against whatever this is. And that'll go on for a while. But then those who are more in the camp of what I call colorblind, will they'll start to counter-protest. They'll start to say, you've gone too far. And they'll start counter-protesting. And then that will go on and they'll be they'll be at each other's throats for a little while, and then things will sort of calm down as we get further away from the incident. We'll sort of be in an equilibrium. And then there'll be another racial incident. And then we'll get the protest, the counter-protest, and then the calming down, and then another racial incident. And, and that just goes on and on and on. And it's the cycle that we're stuck in in this country. I, I wondered, as I was reading the book, if, sometimes I was wondering if you were making more politically pragmatic um, observations or if they were based on certain studies or really those two things can go hand in hand or if they more came from a principled place. And, and one of those questions was relating to your skepticism of activism and protest. Now, of course, anybody reading about the civil rights movement is naturally in the United States is naturally going to think about activism and protest in positive terms. But you mentioned how that cycle of backlash continues so maybe explain what makes you skeptical of activism and protest for advancing the cause of justice today. Well, I'm not arguing about the activism back in the civil rights because that was a different time. Right. And, and, and right. that was a time where, yeah, people were not fully w- willing to admit that people of color could be fully human. And, it, you know, it, there, there was these overt, very racist practices that were that people were engaging in and so that's where the protests seem to have its place why things happen is that that's that becomes our our default that becomes our our, our go-to that there's an incident we, we do the protests and and the problem is that people today don't envision themselves people back then actually envisioned themselves as racist and and they weren't ashamed some of them were not ashamed of that today it's a it's a different type of environment and that type of protest actually can create this sort of backlash. And I know it did back then, but the sort of backlash it's creating today is more sustaining because what's happening is the people creating backlash today, they, and I've heard them out, and I'm not saying I agree with them, they feel like they're on the side of civil rights. They feel like the protesters are the ones who are racist. They feel like they're colorblind and they're trying to ignore race, and these people are bringing up race. That sort of mentality can sustain itself in a way that I don't think it could have back then when, when the mentality was, we got to keep people in their place. In a society that's, that's trying to head towards a sort of a, uh, 
a, a tolerance, a liberal tolerance uh, of all people, that attitude can sustain itself. This one can. And so I have no reason not to believe that the protest can can generate these this kind of protest. Am I saying that there's never a time of protest? I'm not saying that. I'm not saying even today there's never a time for protest. But I fear that people are relying on that too much. And what it'll give you is short-term victories. It, it will definitely give you short-term victories. But those short-term victories are fragile victories, which means that you have to keep protesting, keep the pressure on, or you have to lose them completely because you've not changed anyone's minds. And that is what's really troublesome. I think it might be helpful here for people to have a little bit of broader context. You and I are having this conversation against the backdrop of some of the trucker protests, especially in Canada and now also emerging in the United States. And we normally think of protest as being something from the left. This, of course, is coming from the right. And I saw somebody observe that now the right will be able to see that protest is often counterproductive. This kind of protest when it comes to the political, the political tenor of the country. And so it's not necessarily something that's specific or exclusive to race. It's and also maybe maybe the ultimate example in a different episode I did with Ryan Burge, um, a, a political scientist for this podcast, Gospel Bound, we discussed the huge decline of Christianity in the early 1990s in the United States. And the number one thing that I found it to be correlated to was the anti-abortion movement, was abortion protests. And abortion protests were framed extremely negatively in the media, and a lot of people left Christianity as a result of that negative framing. And so is that, is that a fair observation about how this fits into a broader context of post-civil rights um, organization and public protest? I do, I do. And in fact, I'll even go one further. I forget the name of, there There was a Democrat po- uh, pollster who told the Democrats that when you all are protesting, you're losing votes. Now, if you bring up the issue without this sort of protesting, you actually gain votes. But when you are protesting, uh, you're losing votes. And that person, they fired that person. They didn't want to hear what he had to say. But all he is saying, he's, he's not even saying you shouldn't protest as a moral thing. He's saying protesting is not effective for what you want. And once again, you know, you can get temporary victories. People don't, you know, just to get rid of you for a little while, but those are not lasting victories. Those are not, cha- those are not really moving the needle towards where we want to be, where, which is a society that we can uh, have much more of a, of racial uh, communication, less racial alienation, less racial tension. Well, I'm glad you mentioned the backlash, though, to the civil rights era as well, because it operated differently depending on what level you're studying. Because, you know, certainly here in Birmingham, where you had some of the most spectacular protests, they were extraordinarily effective on a national level. They were not effective at all on a local level in the sense that they led to formal integration, but they did not lead to changed attitudes at least not in that generation. And the, the tragedy there is witnessed by the, the death of the four little girls in September of 1963 by the bombing. And so um, even the most courageous, and we would say that we would all you know celebrate King's uh, protests in Birmingham in spring 1963, even those produced uh, quite a backlash. We probably needed protests at that point in time because what we're right. trying to change was 
overt laws right. that designated blacks as second class citizens. Now, we don't, I mean, I know people, and we could get into how people, what people mean when they say we're a white supremacist society and racism, but with me honest, we don't have those laws today. So, and your audience was, was the federal government, was, was these new shows, and, and yeah. So I think that I, I, I honor those protests because I think that the ones today, though, usually that's not the case. And we're at a point of we don't have that sort of laws today. What we have to do is change perspectives within individuals. And here protesting is not the most effective way of doing that. Now, sketch really what is the, the purpose of your book, this mutual accountability, which includes active listening. And this is, of course, your your alternative to some of these uh, dead ends or frustrations that we've been discussing. And you ask this question, is the purpose to create a fair society or to punish modern whites for our society's centuries of racial abuse? And if I'm understanding you correctly in the book, that seems to be an important way that you contrast mutual accountability uh, with uh, anti-racism. I think it is one of the ways, you, you know, and I know there are people who are into anti-racism and they may disagree with the way I've characterized the movement, but I read the, I read the literature and the question I always come back to is show me the literature where anti-racism is about communicating with whites rather than telling whites what to do. And I'm open to that. I may have missed something. Maybe there's a book I need to read, but the major books that, you know, major books simply do not, they do not allow us to communicate with each other. They dictate to whites what whites are supposed to do. And I understand the emotional sentiment of that because people have felt dictated to for so long. So I understand the emotion behind it. But I know practically it doesn't work. And practically it's not bringing people together. It's, it's polarizing. So I can't go along with that. I, I cannot support something that's going to polarize us more since we're already so deeply polarized. One of your giftings, obviously, is your your academic study in sociology. And one of the things you point to are any number of studies that show that anti-racism does not work. I guess the question is, if anti-racism doesn't work, why do so many people keep trying? That gets me into talking about motivations of people, which is always a scary thing. I mean, part of it, I think some people, I think part of it's emotional. You know, part of it is people are frustrated and, and, and it's sort of like if you have kids and they're doing wrong, you may know this isn't the best thing, but you tell them just shut up and eat your food or whatever. You know, you you're just let's let's just get this done. I mean, and 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 so there's so that's part of it. You know, we're, we're impatient people, so I think that's part of it. I think other people, it may be that uh, they're engaged in anti-racism because it's the thing to do, and so if you want to be safe. If you want to, if you want to make sure that people know that you're doing something, you do anti-racism because everyone's saying that that's what you need to do, and. I suspect some organizations do anti-racism for that same very reason. We can say, hey, we are trying to do anti-racism. Therefore, we can't be engaging in racism, per se. So I think those are a couple of things, you know, the frustration, the the, the eagerness to get something done. But it, ultimately, it's kind of productive. This episode of Gospel Bound is brought to you by Crossway and Mark Rogup's book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. This award-winning book seeks to restore the lost art of lament and wrestle with the questions that come with grief and suffering. Now available, the Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy devotional journal helps you apply this knowledge to your own life. Pick up your copies wherever books are sold or visit crossway.org plus to find out how you can get 30% off and a free copy of the ebook. Yeah, so mutual accountability is your alternative to 
to colorblindness and anti-racism. We focused on anti-racism. Let's talk about colorblindness. I guess the question is there, why doesn't colorblindness work? You know, it would if we if we truly have a society where people of different races were treated exactly the same by our institutions. But we have reams of research showing that that's not the case. You know, we know when it comes to occupational discrimination that there's still research on that happening. Residential segregation, there's still research on that. Criminal justice system, a lot of research showing on how unfair it is. So if you're, if you're going to ignore something, you have to ignore something that's not going to hurt you if you ignore it. But if you ignore the gaping wounds that have been created through these racial differences, these racial inequalities, then they don't go away. They don't get better. They just get worse. So we can't do that. We, we got to find some way of having some level of whether people want to call it equity or justice or equality. You know, I know they mean different things, but if you want to have some sort of fair racial society, perhaps that's a good way of looking at it. You, you got to do something. You got to figure out what you're going to do. You can't just ignore it and hope that it goes away. Which has been a pretty common response to ignore it and then to blame anybody who talks about those ongoing injustices or ongoing inequities. Now, again, in your work as a sociologist, you run into a lot of data that shows that diversity training does not work. I'd be interested to know why, uh, why, why that's been shown to fall short of its goals. You know, the, the, to me, the most interesting study, I mean, there's a lot of studies that show a lot of adverse effects that can come out of diversity training. And, and so I can go into some of those if you want. But to me, the most interesting study is this meta-analysis. And I'm not always a big fan of meta-analysis, but I think that this one seems to be very well done. And what it shows is that if you look at what happens immediately after diversity training, you do see some effects. But then if you look six months later, all the effects of prejudice reduction have gone away. So what I think has happened is that diversity training is sort of like sending your kid off to Bible camp. And then they come back and then they make up their bed and they eat all their food and, you know, and they call you yes, ma'am, yes, sir. And, and you know, because they're being a good Christian. And then six months later, their bed's a mess. You know, they refuse to eat their vegetables and they're back to mom and pop. So it doesn't take... And even even when people, I mean, it's better if it's not just a one-shot thing, but even that doesn't seem to have a lasting effect. Diversity training in and of itself, and there are ways in which you can make it better, yeah. In and of itself, though, diversity training is not a solution. And especially the type of diversity training that tends to arise out of anti-racism, which is much more confrontational, there's no evidence that that works whatsoever. Where there is evidence that if you do things that are uh, more hands-on, perspective-taking, that that can be helpful. But the sort of aggressive anti-racism doesn't really appear to work. Uh, there's a quote in here that I just immediately marked, and I thought, wow, I'm going to need to ask him to explain this to me because it goes so much against what I'll hear from a lot of other sources today. And you write this, we need unity before we can get justice. People of color should demand that they have their voice heard, but we do not have to demand that others shut up. As I mentioned, I, I think a lot of people would disagree with that. Why not search for justice first so that we can get unity out of that justice? Okay, so let's play this out. Let's say you have your group and you know what justice is. So you go and there's people disagree with you. You're going to beat them down to get justice. And you're going to beat them down to get the laws you pass. In this society, what's going to happen? At some point, they're going to have power. So 
the, the laws you pass, they're going to either change them to they're less effective or they're going to get rid of them. The practices you've put in, they're going to remove them completely because you never spent the time to bring them along. You wanted justice immediately. Now, I understand that, but, under, but you have to know that reality is what it is. That type of acti- activism does not create a lasting justice. Unity, where we get people coming in and buying in, and we take the time to work with that, and then we make those changes, that creates a sustainable institutions rather than one that goes back and forth. The, all the whole, the controversy in school boards. So what probably happened was there's a group of people who, for, for the sake of justice, they want school boards to implement. Now, I'm not going to get into whether it's quick race theory or not. That's less important. But they want to implement certain changes. But what happened? They didn't spend the time to bring people along. They didn't want the white parents to have a seat at the table. They want to dictate what the curriculum is going to be. And now those white parents are, as you can see, starting to turn out some of these school board members. Now, I'm not happy about them doing that. I don't want people thinking, oh, he's happy to happen. No, but that is what I would expect to happen because you did not spend the time to create the unity needed for justice. I don't know when you get justice without unity, honestly. Usually what happens is a group wins out and then they dictate what, you, what justice is. And that's, it's usually not justice because it's in the interest of that group. Justice is something that people have to come together. And less people think that what I'm arguing about is some sort of colorblindish type of everyone has the same responsibilities. First, read the book. You know, that's not what I'm arguing. And second, no, I think the justice does look like people of color getting something more than, than perhaps whites because of our, his, our centuries of abuse. But that doesn't mean that we can't abuse people back. It doesn't mean that we can just ignore other people as we try to move forward towards that. We got to bring people to us, with us, and move forward rather than we're going to do it on our own and then you're going you're gonna to have to take what we give you. That's not going to lead to justice. I think as, as people can tell listening to you, George, about uh, Beyond Racial Division, that there's a lot of evidence here that you don't need to be a Christian to be able to agree with. This is simple sociological study, uh, methodology, results, outcomes, things like that. But of course, as a Christian, you do make certain support. You, you argue, make certain arguments for your case of mutual accountability uh, as, as a Christian. And I was left as I reached the, the end of the book. I mean, I've often been discouraged by how, fall, how far Christians have fallen short in their efforts to make a difference on this. And yet you still gave me some hope. But I'm also wondering, is there really any, anything that can bring that justice or lasting hope apart from Christ? Because I'm looking here at your theological basis for mutual accountability, and you write this, that, that we need Christ because of our inability to overcome our innate depravity. And at some level, it seems as though you're advocating that there has to be ongoing forgiveness um, as opposed to a, a priority on punishment. I'm not sure how that works apart from Christ. Just describe how you, you're trying to make this argument as a Christian specifically. Yeah, so, you know, it gets at the larger question on what do we as Christians, what do we expect before we, we go off to our reward? Uh, what sort of society we're going to have? I don't think we'll ever completely get there, all right? So I don't think that we're going to be able to do to correct all the wrongs in society, straighten every path, level every mountain. But we can do better. 
And so my vision is we do better. I'm, it'd be great, you know, if we could create heaven on earth, but the dangers of, of trying to do that is a lot of times people trying to create heaven on earth do a lot of damage. But we can make things better. We, we, can, we, can, we can have less hostility. We can have more community, less polarization. I believe we can do better. And if we, if we keep doing better, then we are being a blessing to others in our society as well as to others within our churches. So, and I get that. I mean, look at any issue. You know, we're not going to get rid of all crime before heaven. We're not going to get rid of, of, of all sexism before heaven. We're not going to get rid of all of any dysfunction before heaven. But it doesn't mean we don't work towards making it better. And so that's sort of how I come down on, on that. But I, you know, I think that's a, a deep philosophical question on what we sh- as Christians should do since we know that, that it's not going to be perfected till, till the afterlife. But still in this life, we have much to work to do. Well, I've been talking with George Yancey about his new book, Beyond Racial Division, A Unifying Alternative to Colorblindness and Anti-Racism. I want to ask a couple questions about uh, his previous work, One Faith No Longer, The Transformation of Christianity in Red and Blue America. I just want to work through the two main arguments of that book. Explain the significance of your conclusion that academics from mainline Christian denominations have more sympathy toward non-Christian groups than they do toward their cons- more conservative religious peers. Yeah, so that came out of a, a, uh, a survey that I, t- I, I sent out to academics first, and then I, I used some data from a national sample. And basically, they, in my survey and the data, we, they're asked to rate people uh, on a 0 to 100 scale how much they like them. And what I found consistently is mainline Protestants and in the national sample, it was theologically liberal Christians. They rated atheists and Muslims above conservative Christians. So that's what I mean, that, that uh, this is an indication that progressive Christians, more liberal Christians, prefer atheists and Muslims to conservative Christians. And our quantitative data seems to back that up as well. And I've also, since I've studied this, I've also just listened to progressive Christians. And I think it's pretty true. I think if you listen to them, they complain about conservative Christians at a rate that they don't about Muslims, uh, definitely not about Muslims and, and even about atheists. Some of them complain about some atheists, but not nearly as much as they did about conservative Christians. If I understand your argument correctly, it seems to come down to the fact that progressives care more about politics than theology. Is that right? That's a it's a little bit more nuanced than that. Yeah. I think they care about social justice issues, okay. and then from social justice issues, they check the politics. I don't think it's directly about politics. Got it. But I think they they have a certain social justice framework that they're looking at. Yeah. Now, the other other main argument from the book. Uh, I wondered, were you surprised to conclude that progressive Christians and conservative Christians? have diverged so much in their core values that they ought to practice, or they thought they ought to be thought to practice two separate religions. And I just want to read this quote because I think it's so bold and clear about your argument here. You write, if there is a civil war within Christianity, it is progressive Christians who understand that fact and have reacted accordingly. They are the ones who are most likely to take the initiative to condemn conservative Christians and thus most likely to direct negative stereotypes toward other Christians, end quote. Yeah, yes, I was surprised. You know, I think my realization of that just came over time. When I, when I first saw some data indicating that, uh, that progressive Christians preferred non-Christians to conservative Christians, I was like, that's interesting. 
I, I didn't immediately jump to these are two different religious groups. But as I started looking at some of the qualitative information and, and start listening to how people were talking and, and analyzing it, I just sort of it started making sense to me. That's how I made sense of the data. So I don't think I'm ever surprised. But yeah, I mean, it, it is an interesting finding. Yeah, so those two questions have been with uh, George Yancey about one faith no longer, the transformation of Christianity in red and blue America. Okay, George, I've got a final three that I always wrap up with on Gospel Bound, so we'll do these uh, fairly quick. First question is, how do you find calm in the storm? Well, I have three boys, uh, a six, five, and three-year-old, so my calm comes when I go to sleep. (laughs) It's hard to be calm otherwise. (laughs) That's fair. Sleep, I love it. Sleep like Jesus on the sea. Uh, second, where do you where do you find good news today? I think I find good news uh, in in some of my relationships, some of the people I see. I mean, I mean, some of my, my friends obviously have their struggles, but a lot of them are making progress in life. I have some fr- a friend who just found a really great job and, and things of this nature. So I, I think in relationships and communities where where I try to find really find good news. Great. And what is the last great book you've read? You know, that's interesting because I hardly read any fiction anymore. So if I was to pick a last great book, it would not be a fiction book. I really enjoy talking about race uh, from Isaac Adams. Uh, I read that book a couple months ago. And it is, you know, it's sort of book that I wish I could write, but I'm not a pastor. Uh, And it it goes along some of the themes I'm talking about in my book. Only it's about how a pastor would facilitate such conversations. I'm so glad you said that. Isaac was a guest earlier in this season oh, cool. on Gospel Bound, and uh, I think it's it's fair to say that your two books could be read very much as companions. If yeah. you mm-hmm. if you needed an argument for why you need to practice Isaac's pastoral approach to race in your church, then you would read your book, uh, Beyond Racial Division: A Unifying Alternative to Color Blindness and Anti Racism. Yeah, my guest on Gospel Bound has been George Yancey. George, it's just been great to talk, and I'm glad, again, you brought Thanks. that up because it's uh, um, that's what I'm trying to accomplish is, is direct people toward these productive resources that will help them to go deeper on these uh, difficult topics. So thanks again for writing this book. Thank you. God bless. Thanks for listening to this episode of Gospel Bound. For more interviews and to sign up for my newsletter, head over to tgc.org slash gospelbound. Rate and review Gospelbound on your favorite podcast platform so others can join the conversation. Until next time, remember, when we're bound to the gospel, we abound in hope. Mm-hmm.